Jamie Ansu, who is the Canadian Team Arctic rep, who's the Team Arctic race manager for Canada, came down to our shop and said, hey, so I got this kid from Saskatchewan. He says, uh, you can't believe how well he can ride. I said, okay, what's his name? He said, well, his name is Blair Morgan. Would you be willing to sponsor him with an engine for next year? Well, we talked about it a bit, and so we, yeah, we'll do it. You know, so we sponsored him with an engine. And, wow. Uh, the rest is history, because Blair came to Duluth, stand-up style riding, uh, doing the Superman, the kicks, the uh, the tricks in front of the crowd at the finish line. It was a whole new deal. And uh, nobody was prepared for that. And as it turned out, Blair had one of our 600 engines, and uh, or 678 engine, I guess it was, based on the, uh, the 600. And he just annihilated everybody. And he uh, then that team grew into not only Blair, but also to have Carl Kuster and Earl Reimer racing out of Jamie's shop up in Canada. And uh, our relationship grew, so we provided engine packages for all three of them. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. This is your host, Gordon Van. Today's episode, episode 30. Uh, check out the past episodes on Snowmobiling Podcast. You can get them on iTunes. Just search Snowmobiling Podcast. Uh, you can check them out on uh, Facebook page. Uh, they're all on there too. Uh, Snowmobiling Podcast Facebook page. Uh, share these episodes. Uh, like them. Uh, say share them with your friends. And um, check out the Twitter page too. Uh, Snowmobiling Podcast on Twitter. And uh, podcast and uh, Google Plus, we're on there too. We're we're everywhere. So wherever you search, you can get these episodes, the past uh, 29 episodes, and there's some great legends on there. So check them out. Um, today's episode co-hosted by Hal Armstrong of Time Machines. You can check out Hal's uh, uh, Facebook page, uh, Time Machines. He's got some great uh, stuff on there from the past. Uh, uh, he's uh, Hal's a, a vintage uh, aficionado. He he uh, he loves the vintage sleds and uh, writes about them for Snowboard Canada and uh, and uh, Snowtech magazine. So check out uh, check out that. So today's episode is with uh, two icons of the snowmobile performance parts and race team uh, era, uh, Tim Berg and Bert Bassett of uh, Pro 5. So Tim Berg uh, headed up uh, Black Magic, and, and uh, Bert Bassett headed up Pro 5, which was a Polaris race team and, uh, uh, back in the era when, uh, when all the uh, manufacturers had a, had a performance parts uh, uh, race team, uh, these two are the biggest, and they, and they were huge rivals in the in the late 80s and Formula 3 and stock uh, stock racing. So you'll hear about uh, all the uh, racers they had uh, um, that, that they had racing for them and, and the wins that they had. Uh, so hope you like this one. So here we are, Bert Bassett and Tim Bird.
Okay, on the line with me, uh, we got our two guests and our co-host, uh, Hal Armstrong from Time Machines is on uh, the line with me. And uh, our guest today, Bert Bassett uh, from uh, Roseville, Minnesota, um, knowing well with uh, the Players Pro 5 uh, ownership, and Tim Berg of Blackmagic. And uh, actually, you uh, also started uh, Snowcross, basically, as we know it today uh, in, in the United States with MRP. So guys, introduce yourself, say hi. Well, uh, hello everybody, and uh, I'm calling in from uh, Cape Coral, Florida, and it's really nice here today. It's certainly was, not going to snow. And that was Tim Burke. We'll uh, enjoy the weather. <laughs> and Bert? Yeah, hello. Uh, Bert calling in from uh, Roseville, Minnesota, and it's raining, and it uh, looks like it could snow anytime. Yeah? <laughs> All right. Well, perfect. So let's, and Hal Armstrong, you're on the line there, too. Yep, uh, just happy to poke uh, these up, uh, 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 Bert goes way back with Polaris, back to the 70s, and, and then, of course, with Pro 5. And uh, Tim, of course, had probably was the, the grandfather of, uh, you know, these uh, mod shops that were big in the 90s with Black Magic that uh, grew into huge popularity, and then, of course, with, uh, with uh, Snowcross. Yeah, well, uh, you know, back in the back in the '90s, I remember we had uh, there must. Have, Tim, did you did you ever know or, or Bert how many speed shops were really active back in the '90s? I believe well, I, probably about ten of them going. You know, uh, some some were a little bigger and, and some were a little smaller than, uh, than Tim and myself. Yeah, I think that there's at least ten. I think there's probably ten. They're pretty active, but then there started to be some. Smaller spin-offs that sprouted up here and there, and uh, that's where it kind of went to some some real specialized uh, people with all the West, and uh, that turned out to be the big market for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, let's 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 start with uh, let's start with Tim. Uh, Tim, wh where, when did you start snowmobiling, and, and basically uh, your interest in snowmobiling and, and speed, and and then you know in basically you know talk about uh, how, how you started uh, MRP. Snowcross, because that was the earliest years of Snowcross in North America. Well, I started racing when I was, uh, I think I was in ninth or 10th grade in high school in Gonvick, Minnesota, northwestern Minnesota. And um, we'd had sleds for four or five years, I think, at the time. And my dad was always active with that and stuff. So we found a uh, 320SS uh, Skidoo, bought it from a dealership in Bagley, Minnesota, and a guy by the name of Junior Christensen. It turned out to be a really good friend from Bagley, helped me get started racing. And I raced in the junior classes, and that was back when you could race uh, stock with the sled, and you'd pull in and into the pits afterwards and adjust the carburetor and put a tune pipe on that 320SS and, and go out and race the mod. So graduated to the adult classes and had real good luck with it. Uh, raced it for a year there, and uh, or two, I guess it actually was. And then uh, the following year, when I was a senior in high school, uh, Polaris had come out with the new aluminum chassis with the was the prelude to the ATX. And uh, while I wasn't well enough known to qualify for a three-cylinder 440-439, I was uh, got a 432 twin mod and uh, raced that throughout my senior year in high school. And that's when I got to meet all those guys, uh, Greg Headland, Jimmy Headland, uh, Dwayne Updahl, Wayne Burkle, uh, Arlen Soggy, the whole troop, and they 
they, I don't know, they kind of liked me and took me under their arm and, and uh, like Dick Gokey always said, you know, I went to the Claire School of Racing and I have to say that they honestly did teach me more about the basics of a snowmobile than anybody else that I was ever involved with. But look at that, throughout my senior year, I had a real good year. After that, I switched over to Articat. Had some good friends in Kerbert, Minnesota, that were that had the uh, the plant there that built the tracks and the crates, and they got me hooked up with some Articats and uh, raced a 440 mod Articat EXT, and that that was not nearly the success that I had with the uh, with the Polaris. So I raced that for a couple of years, and then I took a year or so off, uh, started pipelining, running all over the country pipelining and. Uh, just didn't have time, but I kept involved with it yeah. all the time and uh, followed everybody. And when we came back uh, from pipeline, I ended up getting married, married a lady from Minneapolis. Uh, actually, she grew up in Fridley, and her family's from northern Minnesota also originally. So we've been married 37 or 38 years now, but uh, after getting married, I still had the urge to be involved with racing. So I started the traction and control deal with Kalamazoo, bought one of their old trucks, and uh, started a group called Cross Country Express. Mm -hmm. And I sold uh, studs and carbides out of the back of my van and out of the back of one of their trucks. And uh, that's when the Players Indy was just being developed. I can remember watching Bert and uh, I can't remember the other guy who it was with them, but in Annandale, they had one of the first uh, two Indies out, and they were testing and, and playing there. And I was supporting a good friend of mine, Guy Uselinger, at the time, and was uh, helping him out. And, but the Indies were, you could tell. I mean, they were really going to come on strong, and, and they came on in the late stages and uh, showed us their stuff. In fact, I think Bert could probably answer this. I think, I think it was Ann and Dale, but it, something sticks in my mind about the sled overheating or blowing up or something. And I see. I remember seeing Bert come into the pits with steam just rolling out of the flood. <laughs> but uh, that's that's when the Indy was just getting going, and uh, the rest, of course, is history with that because it it grew uh, exponentially after that. So that was the the how I kept involved with it. As time went along, uh, USA, which was the big sanctioning body across the United States, had a cross country division, and. Uh, Terry Bunk was the president of that. Uh, Butch Rust was involved. Larry Falk and and a bunch of those guys. And I became involved with that, and, and probably the guy that dragged me into it was Don Erickson. He used to be in marketing at Flores, and uh, got on that board and became involved with it. As the sport evolved, um, we weren't getting off snow con consistently, so our events turned to all lake races. JP became Lake Enduros. And then while I'd like to take the credit for Snowcross, I certainly can't. Jim Belke went over to uh, Europe and watched some Snowcross races. He came back and, and put one on at a good friend of his place in uh, Quadna Mountain, who happened to own the company, own the Quadna Mountain at the time. And uh, he put a Snowcross on there and you know, when I saw that, I thought to myself, man, this this is a format that we could really relate to after watching a lot of motocross races, oval racing, of course, with cars and stuff all my life. And uh, all of a sudden, you had something that was in a... What year was that, uh, Tim? Facility. 
I think that was probably like, um, I think I married in 78, so that'd be like 81, 82. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere yeah. in there. That's the thing. And uh, kind of the same time the indie was coming around, and uh, in that time frame. Okay, well, we'll we'll, we'll 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 stop you we'll stop you there and we'll we'll, we'll get to Bert okay. um, because uh, um, we, we want to get get Bert's beginning here. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is where we want to start talking about. Then we're talking about uh, you know your involvement with uh, with MRP. But uh, Bert, mm-hmm. uh, talk to us about uh, uh, your beginnings with uh, with Polaris. I started uh, started working for Polaris in 1967 and. In uh, July of '67, I started on the assembly line, and I worked on the assembly line for about a year. And then they had an opening in, in engineering for test driver, and I signed a posting and ended up getting the job. And, and I test drove for Polaris for for about seven years. A year after uh, starting a test driving job, I was offered the, the supervisor's uh, job of field testing, and uh, and a couple of my other buddies didn't want to take the job, so I ended up, uh, Ed Munshoot was one, and, and uh, Ray Munshoot, I ended up with the supervisor's job, and uh, <laughs> and I, I guess it turned out uh, just fine. It was some trying times, but I had a lot of fun traveling all over for Polaris, uh, Testing in the mountains and just about every uh, every place that had snow, we'd end up in the spring of the year or the fall of the year for early testing. And then in uh, 76, 77, I uh, moved over into the new development group and uh, we started working on TXLs. And, and a little later in 79, it evolved to, to working on uh, IFS, CNDs, and Okay, go help. I know you got some questions. <laughs> okay, so uh, Bert, the um, you were running the the first TXLs, uh, correct? The first liquids. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and uh, so those first liquid motors were they? Uh, they were the Fuji Star motors. Were they developed by Jerry Shank and and yourself and Bob Eastman, or who 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 who, who built the first liquid motors for the TXLs? Well, Leroy was uh, Limblad was very instrumental in in working with Fuji on on a lot of the aspects of the the Fuji engines for Polaris. Jerry Reese was involved, but uh, Leroy was very instrumental in in uh, working with the, the Japanese fellows on on the Fuji engines. And myself and uh, a little Japanese fellow named Klaasu. And Lowell Carlson, that was our main project to uh, to develop that 340 TXL liquid engine, and we uh, we tested it for about a year and a half, and we had some issues with water cavitation and head shape and this and that, but uh, with persistence, it uh, turned out pretty good. Okay, and then uh, of course the big one is the. Uh the Indy, if you want to just kind of step us, it was you and Bob uh, Bob Prezakwa that that raced the the first Indies, right? Actually, it was uh, myself and Ed Munshud uh, had the first two. Okay. Uh, we raced them up in uh, in Lake Vermilion on a on a cross country, and our goal was to compare them against the the Springer style front end, you know, the TX or TXL, and, and uh, see 
see how much better they were. And uh, as it turned out, uh, I finished the race uh, 20 minutes ahead of the the next guy, and I believe uh, Eddie was right in there, or, or even ahead of me. I think there we had very good finishes there. Wow. So when these first came out, I guess they were under wraps. Uh, you brought them in the back of a van or whatever, and and uh, out you went. Were they just basically like the RXL, or were they uh, a, a TXL with a complete new front end on them? It was basically a TXL with uh, with an independent front end uh, trailing arm and, and radius rods and shock setup, and, and uh, it was it was some prototype stuff that uh, Ed and Bob and myself put together and, and uh, went racing with, and it turned out pretty good. Yeah. So from there, in the uh, when the Indy first came out, uh, I mean the snow had, had dropped. When when was it that you started Pro Five? Uh, when did you leave Polaris? I left Polaris in, in 1981, and I was actually working on on sleds in my garage uh, at my house here in 1980, and I was uh, setting up machines for Archie Simonson and, and his brother and, and cousin, and that was my uh, my first first customers. But I was still working at Polaris, and then I left Polaris in '81. Bert, okay, uh, Bert, Bert, the ownership of, uh, of, of Polaris, what, what does Pro 5 stand for? There was five of us that, uh, that thought we were good enough to, to hang around with the pros. So. <laughs> who, who, were, who, who were those uh, owners? Who were the original guys, Bert? It was, uh, it was Arlen Soggy, uh, Daryl Westberg, myself, and uh, Dalton LaSalle and, and uh, Willie Walewski. And what, 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 briefly, what was, what was their kind of backgrounds? Were they all from Polaris too? They were all in Polaris employees. Uh, Dalton was a, a pipe fabricator at, uh, at Polaris, and, and uh, Daryl Westberg was a fabricator in, in uh, engineering, and so, uh, same with Arlen Soggy. And Willie was a dyno operator over at Polaris. So what, what was what was so what was their motivation to uh, to leave Polaris? Were they laid off or something, or or it, you know, why did why did they break off from Polaris and, and come to work for Pro Five? Did they? Well, they really didn't. It was just uh, they just worked part time for me in the garage or in the evenings and stuff. And then in '84, I uh, moved my shop and and uh, actually Larry Rugland became my party uh, partner then, and, and uh, we took it from there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, Tim. I guess we'll go. We'll get back to you. Um, um, so I don't want you to having too many drinks or anything. You two, uh, when you're listening to all these stories too, back and forth. So. <laughs> um, okay, Tim. So, yeah. So uh, Tim, um, we're in the in the 80s now. Um, uh, like you say, you were you were you were looking at Snowcross, and, and and you know the beginning of Snowcross was getting you know starting to get developed from from Europe, and you know now coming to uh, to North America. So where where did you go from there? From um, you know you seeing this in Europe and then wanting to start this uh, MRP. Well, it was it was obvious that the current layout of uh, classes simply wasn't working. We only had one class, you know, the stock class, and there was a mod class for the lake class. Lake races and uh, the TXLs and the Indies did extremely well on the lakes with Archie and and uh, Scotty Simonson and. And Dinger and Lee Falk and the boys, they really 
put it put it on everybody with the studs, and all the skidoos and Arctic cats, of course, were chasing them, and never really did catch them because it was pretty much run by the Polaris. So I felt that we needed to have a different group of classes, and I remember we had a meeting at uh, in John Waldock's mother's house, a board meeting at CCC, and at the time I'd become the president of it, and uh, and I laid out to the guys, this is like in August or September, what I would like to do at Quadna for our opening event at the first event, and that would include, I think, at the time I had an idea for seven sport classes, three uh, semi-pro classes, and two pro classes. And I laid it out how I'd like to do it with round-robin racing and, and uh, give people multiple chances to get on the track because everybody wanted more track time. And, and I can remember sitting there playing this day. Don Erickson, the players are still on the board, and he sat there and, and set a cigarette down and said, Tim Bird, you are effing nuts. There's no <laughs> way we're going to get that done. And I said, well, we have to try it. You know, and luckily the guy stuck with me, and, and, and uh, Butch Rust and Larry Falk supported it. John uh, Waldock supported it. We got it going, and we went up to, up to uh, Quadnamon that year, and it was a, to be honest, it was a raving success yeah. for us because we were able to get, like, 50, 60 events off in a day of races, you know, and, uh, and built some uh, anticipation for the following day for finals, and it worked very well. So we kept doing that and moved it on to lake, lakes and stuff, but the real Snowcross stuff was done on the dirt in Kwadna, and it's really the only track we had at the time that was on the dirt. The rest of them were all in lakes. And then as time went along, we had some guys like Pro 5's Mike and Steve, who will get onto the lakes, and they just, I'll say there's, there's nobody smoother than those two guys were on the lakes. They just flat put it on everybody, you know, and, uh, they had this uncanny ability to realize how loose the sled should be, how tight the sled should be, and where it should accelerate, and when it should accelerate, and they, they really uh, dominated that form of racing for some time. As it went along, uh, it became more and more obvious that, as with any uh, nonprofit group, certain people do all of the work. And... Uh, I think it was 1984, 85, I went to the board and asked them if I could take the uh, group private. And um, by that time, USSA had kind of folded up. Central Cross Country had become an independent group, independent company, and we basically took over the assets of Central Cross Country, turned it into MRP, and uh, evolved from that with the MRP format and, and got our workers in place and, and did that for a few years. We tried lake racing, uh, MRP. Uh, we actually promoted some mobile races, promoted some races in Grand Forks, which Bert really supported, and uh, did a race in Alexandria. That was a huge failure financially, but um, we learned a lot from it and uh, kept us in contact with, the, with all of the manufacturers and, of course, Articat had been pretty much fishing for a few years then. Uh, so they'd been out of business, and they started coming back in 85 when we were just getting going again with our with MRP, and 
had a lot of conversations with him, and that's when the guys from Articat asked me if I would like to uh, do something similar to what Fast was doing with Skidoo, and uh, also Pro 5 with Polaris. Yeah. So that's that's how the uh, Black Magic group came together. So who were who were some of the stars back uh, in the M MRP days? I mean, you had you mentioned uh, the Hool brothers. Uh, uh, there, there was there was many other ones. Uh, um, Hibbert, I guess, uh, Kurt Hibbert, and um, well, Kurt was Kurt came along later, you know. But to be really honest with you, it was the Hool guys that we were primarily racing in the lakes then, and uh, we had our quad events. You know, Todd Elmer did well. Todd could do pretty well in the, in the motocross or snowcross also because he had a motocross background. He could do well on the dirt there in, in Quadna. Guy Usildiger was great. Uh, Archie and, and the Simonsons, and then when the, when the races became real condensed in like a one-mile or a two-mile racetrack, we could see the entire Le Mans race rather than around the outside perimeter of the lake. That's when Steve and Mike came in, and uh, Lee Falk did very well. Uh, let's see, Tim Bender would come over periodically and, and play with us, but he didn't get it down as well as as Mike and Steve, and, and Steve even was able to take his uh, wherewithal and, and switch to Yamaha and, and uh, did extremely well with Yamaha. I think he won two or three Toyota trucks uh, when we were giving away trucks in the time with MRP. So yeah, oh, really? He, um, you're, you're, he did you're, very well with that, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a good payday for them. Um, okay, Bert, um, was, was, was uh, Steve and Mike with you at, at, at that time? In the mid '80s. Pardon me. Talk about your uh, your uh, relationship with uh, with uh, Steve and Mike and Mike Cool. Um, when when did that be, when did that start? Um, because they were. They, yeah, actually, I built the sled for uh, for Mike Cool in '87. It was a, a, a trail indie, a 488 trail Indian. Polaris wasn't very competitive with uh, with the guys at that time, and and. Uh, Gary, uh, actually, Mike's dad asked me if I could put a sled together for for Mike, and I said, yeah, we can try something out, and uh, we built a, like I say, this little trail Indian, and Mike, uh, I believe it was at Forest Lake there, Mike jumped down it, and, and uh, he uh, ended up third behind Steve and Guy on the Yamahas, I believe, so we were pretty impressed with Mike's driving ability, and, and after that, uh, we started sponsoring Mike, and and uh, a couple of years later, Steve followed and uh, come over and wrote some of our stuff too. So yeah. that's the affiliation with those two guys. <laughs> now, did, did you did you did you build many snowcross uh, uh, sleds, or were they mostly oval sleds? We uh, we built a few snowcross sleds, but it, for the most part, it was uh, for ovals. You know, the Formula Threes and Mod Twos. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to jump in, uh, yeah. Gord. Just for a sec. So, like where Tim had left off uh, um, with the, uh, the the ICCSF was the big cross country circuit in the 70s, correct? Right. And, that and uh, so that's what I think, uh, Bert. Uh, you guys were all competing in, and Gerard Carpick was uh, one of the big riders. So, as we got into the early uh, 80s with the uh, the Indies, and then Yamaha came out with the SR. Uh, SRB, right, with the telescopic strut front end, and then the phaser came out in 84, and that's when we've seen uh, Bobby Donahue 
and uh, Tim Bender and those guys kind of jump into uh, into the, uh, the I guess you call it that Le Mans series that you had started, right, Tim? That's correct. They came over and raced with us a bit. Right. Yeah. So at that time in the early '80s, uh, Bert, who, who who were your riders then? Like on the on the first 600 Indies, that type of thing, that muscle machine shootout stuff like that that they had going. It was basically uh, Archie and Steve and, and Scott Simonson in in the early 80s. Okay. And you know we had a we had a number of uh, like Corey Davison. Uh, he didn't he didn't come over till the mid 80s with us. You know he did some snowcross and cross country, but uh, right. for the most part it was the Simonson boys in the early 80s. Okay. So uh, Tim, you were saying that uh, um, you know um, you know Polaris had the Pro Five and. Uh, and uh, Arctic had just kind of resurrected itself, and uh, they had come out with the, I guess it was the first Wildcat, the 650 Wildcat. So that was right around the time when, when Black Magic, when you, when you started Black Magic as a performance shop for, for Arctic trail riders and, uh, and racers? Yeah, that's right. Uh, what happened there is Brian Estes and, and uh, Oli Tweet met with me at the, at the Holiday Inn in Alexandria, and I think it was at the Muscle Sled Shootout weekend in Alexandria. Yeah. But uh, we talked about some different things. And, and I, Brian was at my wedding, and I was in his wedding, so we kind of grown up together. And actually, I was on the Canadian Snow Pro team at the time with Brian. I was a mechanic for Tommy Porter, and, and Brian was the other driver. And uh, that was in the late 70s, actually, before I even got married. And... Uh, so we'd kept in touch all along throughout the years and talked about the different things. And all of us, of course, have always been performance-orientated. Ole has also, and Ole likes to win. He likes to race. And uh, Bert knows Ole very well. I think Ole's originally from Rosos. They're um, very competitive people, and we wanted to, they wanted to get something back in place for their brand because there was nothing at the time to give any real uh, – well, with all of their brand, they were still just getting back on their feet, and it was not easy for them to do. So we talked about that at that, and I don't remember the year that was, but it was in, I believe, uh, December at that muscle side shootout. I think Larry Colton ended up winning it, but um, different ideas of what we could do to do something. So I went back, talked to my wife about it quite a bit. We... Uh, actually met with Chris Toomey and discussed what we would do, how we would do it, how it would be structured, where we'd locate it, and uh, all kinds of different things. At the time, I was working for a pipeline contractor in uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and they had a really good job. You know, I was flying all over, and we had jobs in Phoenix and Tucson and San Francisco and Kansas and Illinois. But uh, I always had this urge to make a living and something that I really loved. And while I like pipelining, um, snowmobiles had always been part of my life. And, and I told my mother at one time I was going to make a living doing it sometime. So we ended up uh, leaving the job on the pipeline. Still had MRP going. I left, uh, I think, in July of 1988. And we incorporated Black Magic in 1988 and kind of coincided with their with their um, introduction of the Wildcat. The Wildcat had been out for like six months when we, when we started our company. So that's, 
that's how black magic got started. Right. Um, so so um, with, with 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 MRP, I mean, you 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 have three gigs going now, uh, and uh, MRP, like, um, did did you did you see that as as growing or did or more or where, where was your focus uh, then? Was it MRP or was it with uh, starting Black Magic? You had two. Well, two, there, was two no, big... there was no there was no doubt that my focus was with uh, starting Black Magic, and that was a very time consuming and and cash flow consuming enterprises to get going and and we could see that very easily that I wasn't going to be able to uh, do both. Roxanne and I were working night and day as Bert knows. I mean, I could call him at 8 o'clock at night. He could call me at 9 o'clock and probably still answer the phone, you know, virtually every day of the week, especially in the wintertime. So we we went actively looking for somebody to uh, do a good job with MRP and surprisingly, Jerry Dillon and his wife came to us and uh, asked if we'd be interested in selling it. Uh-huh. And uh, we ended up coming to terms with Jerry. I remember we sold it to him for the cost of our two-way radios and and computer stuff. I mean, so we didn't. There was no blue sky involved. Uh, all we ever tried to do with MRP in the first place was be able to have enough money to take ourselves on vacation uh, once a year for a week, and uh, that's what we'd done. And we sold it to Jerry and supported him as much as we possibly could. I think that Jerry probably purchased it in 89, uh, the latter part of 89, and and uh, we ran it for like a year and a half after we started Black Magic, but it was just, it was way too much to do. And in addition to that, I was dumb enough to try and promote races at the same time, and I was working, uh, I never did succeed in getting skinny, but I sure worked it up that I should have got skinny. You you, you must you must have you must have seen that uh, Snowcross was really gonna like take off though because all all, of, all four manufacturers were were back into racing after probably a couple of years absence of off and on. Um, yes yes they were the thing was though there was awful, there was also a lot of manipulation going on with the manufacturers trying to control where it went and how it went. Right. And uh, of course ovals were going good at the time. They were still strong. They were still relatively good. The crowds at Eagle River every year. They had really good crowds at Antigua, and over in those uh, venues, we had a great crowd in, in uh, Grand Forks the year that we did have the event there. And uh, but there was a lot of uh, everybody was trying to position themselves, and I was kind of in a between a rock and a hard place. I was too attached to Articat to uh, no matter what I said or what I did would be perceived differently with the other manufacturers to try and garner support for the MRP group. So it was, it was a good time for me to get Jerry to take over. Yeah, perfect. Okay, Bert, um, mid-80s, ovals are, ovals are going good. Super competitive right now with uh, really, I guess, can we say three of the four manufacturers? Yamaha wasn't really in a lot, but uh, they were certainly in there with Tim Bender. Um, but obviously stock racing and new Formula 3 racing, modified racing, were, were, were taking off. Uh, talk about that. It was, it was, it was getting pretty, pretty competitive back then. Oh, it certainly was. It was, uh, you know, in, the, in the, late, uh, the late 80s there and early 90s there, you know, when the Formula 3 started uh, becoming very popular. And, of course, the, the mod sleds were popular also. And, Gosh Almighty, we uh, we built. I think we built about ten uh, ten Formula Threes in in 1990, and, and we 
had a handful of mod twos and a few mod ones, and, and oval racing was 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 our business at the time. Yeah. So when you were building these uh, F3 uh, sleds, uh, Bert, where would you get? Just kind of step us through how you would start building one of these. Somebody would come buy a stock Indy 650 and, and bring it to you, and then you'd go from there, and depending on how much money they had, you would, you know, change the chassis or do the motor, or how, how did it, how did that sled like that actually get built up that, uh, you know, uh, was competitive? Most of our, our mod sleds, we would, uh, we would buy the component parts from Polaris and modify them and, uh, and build the, the race chassis and and the engines we'd get in a stock form, and, and uh, had a fellow named Wayne Hansen that was just superior on on porting and, and doing the engine work. And, and Leroy Limblad was actually dynoing with us, and, and of course Larry was was involved in the Formula Three days. Uh, he was a very good engine man and pipe builder. So that's pretty much. They were pretty much all hand built uh, sleds that we'd, uh, our customers would contact us and we'd agree on a price and, and we'd build them one. So the, uh, did you have your own dyno or were you using the dyno at Polaris? At the time, uh, at the time in 1988, we didn't have one, but in, in 1989, we, we got our own dyno. And <laughs> sadly to say, it was an expensive mistake to own your own dyno. <laughs> <laughs> we blew a lot of engines up, but you do need them for pipe development and, and port timing development. And stuff. So who was doing the uh, the pipe uh, development and stuff like that? Pardon me. Who was who was doing the fabricating of the pipes and and uh, and doing the math behind uh, the you know the, the pipe design and that? Was it trial by error, or did you guys do it by uh, by uh, you know calculations and that? It was it was basically trial by error. We would uh, we would make the straight pipes and and, uh, and we'd dyno them in a straight form before you curved them and fit them for the sled to see if they had any potential. And, and of course you do lose power when you you curve them and, and uh, put them in a chassis. But uh, it was a lot of trial by error, and we'd look at, at different styles of pipes. You know, even even some motorcycle. Uh, Pipes and stuff, and uh, try and get some ideas. And then there's a there's a formula of Belfast uh, for building pipes. So it was a lot of trial by error. So with the Pro Five days at that time, were you doing uh, much aftermarket for you know you know the average trail rider that wanted to buy a set of Pro Five pipes? Were you were you into that type of aftermarket, or was yours strictly uh, for the racer? Yes, we we built pipes for the standard uh, 600 and, and 650 Indies, and we sold a lot of those pipes. And then down the down the trail there, it turned into the mid 90s. There we built I don't know how many sets of pipes for the XLTs, but it was a bunch of them. Right. Everybody good? Yep, real good. Yep. So Tim, with uh, with Black Magic taking off, I've got one of your older catalogs, 2001. Uh, I mean, you're you're your business just grew. I mean, it was kind of like the Dennis Kirk of uh, performance parts for Articat. You could buy, you know, cosmetic stuff to full-blown clutch kits, motors. Who, who, who were the key people that you hired uh, to do your engine development work in that? And did you have a? Obviously, you must have had a dyno and everything, the same as uh, Bert. Yeah, we had uh, we had a really good group. 
the problem I had is every time we get somebody good, Articat would hire them. <laughs> but but uh, actually, we had I had Mike McCarville was the first guy to come up to us, and Mike was from drag racing fame with uh, Bill Reynolds, and Mike jumped into the engine development right head first. He just loved it. Uh, we had a Superflow 901, and uh, that was a I think thirty-five thousand dollar investment, which, like Bert says, is by far the cheapest part is the purchase price because. After that, you're doing nothing but spending money on parts. But uh, Mike did a lot of it. We had another fellow by the name of Scott Castengay who came out and moved off to Thief River with us. He was from uh, Maine, I believe. And um, those guys were our mainstays for the, for the mid-'90s with engine development. That would be Mike McArland and Scott. Arnie Rannon. Did a lot of fabricating of pipes. Shane Wall did fabricating of pipes for us. Another one of Bert's former employees, sir, Jerry Peterson, who uh, worked with uh, the Victory Motorcycle Group later on in Indiana. And uh, that bunch uh, worked for us for a couple of years fabricating pipes. And there's so many people out there that have tremendous talents to uh, fabricate and do things of that nature. The problem with it, as Bert knows, you know, it's a, it's a seasonal business. And uh, you want to be able to try and support everything, but uh, the cash flow just doesn't continue as it needs. We exploded. Uh, we started out in 88, and I think by the time we got to 1998, 10 years later is when we peaked. And uh, after that, the different things that requirements of the EPA and EFI and emissions and noise restrictions put a big curb in a lot of the people's uh, aftermarket companies, not only ours, but just about everybody's. Was, was there yeah, a... that was, uh, and I guess the same for you, Bert. I'm thinking, uh, you know, you can't just make a living off of uh, off of sleds. So did you uh, get involved much doing aftermarket for the ATV group for Polaris, like the quads or anything like that, or you or just strictly sleds and 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 then do something else in the summer. No, we did uh, when when Polaris uh, introduced their their 250 trail bosses. We uh, we actually built some mod kits for those and and pipes and porting and and uh, we did we did sell quite a little bit of that uh, the first few years of it. But it it seemed that 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 style of racing uh, wasn't near near as big as the snowmobile thing was. At least in our area, so we kind of shied away from it down the road there. So with the, um, like Tim was saying, you know, as uh, you know, people started clamping down with uh, sleds with pipes on the trails. It was really, it was really getting crazy. You know, uh, we were losing a lot of trail access. Uh, you know, landowners, farmers, and that didn't want guys sitting outside their their you know house at two in the morning having a smoke with their triple pipe 650 idling away and that so that business really petered out and and then of course the engines once EFI started coming on um, how did that affect uh, how did that affect the Pro 5 business and then Tim uh, affect your your business Bert it uh, it definitely had a big effect on us uh, to have the the equipment to to handle the fuel injection in the EFI do 
doing all the mapping, and it was tough for the manufacturers to get it right. So we just looked at it. It, it said this is no way that we're going to get into it because it's just way too time-consuming to try and build a, a fuel injection ship for your given pipes, the fuel emission, everything was, was involved there. So we just phased right out of them. How about you, uh, Tim? Yeah, it, it's a, it was a difficult deal. We were fortunate enough to be able to use the uh, programming characteristics from Articat, and we hired uh, Rory Haugen at the time. He got involved with the uh, uh, 580 EFI development at Articat. So we had a, a little bit of a, a horse up on that deal, but with the twin pipes of the triple port exhaust engine, and uh, we sold uh, thousands of those uh, twin pipes, and they would go like a scalded dog. But if the people that got the product didn't do exactly like you instructed them to with the directions as far as touch tuning and, and things like that, or if they changed a different, to a different silencing method or something like that, it simply wouldn't work because it, it had to be exactly like it was. And like Bert says, you know, people would wonder when we sold our chips I think our aftermarket chips for $225 a piece. And you can buy the chip blank for $1.50. <laughs> and you can make eight, eight of them at a time to reprogram them. But we would go to Alaska every fall right after the Novi show to verify stuff. We'd go into the mountains in the spring. We'd spend the entire month of February and March, months of February and March basically on Lake of the Woods and the entire winter on Pine Lake making one or two models of a chip. You know, so how can you put a value on that? And, and Bert's right, you know, once that, once that became part of the system for the manufacturers, it basically pushed everybody out. We tried for a couple of years, and I think what the saving grace with us was is in order for Articat to uh, qualify their systems, they had to have them tamper-proof, so they had to seal them. And once they sealed them, we couldn't replace the chip. You'd have to actually send the ECU in for reprogramming, and that enabled them to control their warranty issues. And the big thing was it gave them a, a bonus with the EPA regulations. They could say that their system was not was not able to be tampered with. So that helped them a lot. And otherwise, I'm sure we'd have run out of money a lot earlier. But it was it was so flipping expensive. I don't know. I don't know if I even want to figure it out. How much it costs to make a chip? Yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah, tough for people to with the skill to uh, to program these things and. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a it is it is so fun to work with. I mean, it's a blast to work with, but you have things that um, that affect it so much, like light clutch, heavy clutch, back pressure, pipe temp, and very few consumers would understand that. And, um, like, for example, if they would drive on a trail and hold it at a constant speed of 5,500 to 6,000 RPM, there's a lean spot there in the production vehicle. And if they just let it sing through that area, nine times out of ten, they'd seize up. Yeah. Now, if they'd go back and forth with the throttle and, and drive it like you and I or Burke would probably drive it, they'd never know it. But if you have a your wife driving and she just holds it right there at 5,500 RPM, she'd be coming back on a rope. It's just the way it was. And um, 
it, it was uh, it's fun, but man, it was a problem. We actually had a couple of EFIs we got on the snowcross with Carl Kuster and Blair Morgan, and, and those were good, but uh, to make it available for trail riders in a highly modified version was very difficult. Uh, okay, let's talk about let's talk about uh, some more of the races. Um, so stock races uh, were, were were taking off and and, and Formula Three, and you know Tim, you also you also mentioned your snowcross riders. Uh, Blair Morgan was one of your one. I mean, he just broke into snowcross and and uh, maybe maybe talk about how how that relationship started uh, with uh, Blair and, and Carl, and you also had Earl Reimer too uh, um, on on your teams. Talk about uh, that well that race. Yeah, Stokos evolved, you know, and Jerry took, after Jerry bought MRP, Jerry took MRP into a completely different realm. And Jerry, I have, I have to give him credit for the whole thing, but he, he brought it to the main stage. He was able to get the ESPN stuff with the uh, X Games and got that whole program started and got it into the forefront. Well, what happened then is in uh, 1980. Jamie Ansu, who was the Canadian Team Arctic rep, he was the Team Arctic race manager for Canada, came down to our shop and said, hey, so I got this kid from Saskatchewan. He says, uh, you can't believe how well he can ride. I said, okay, what's his name? He said, well, his name is Blair Morgan. Would you be willing to sponsor him with an engine for next year? Well, we talked about it a bit, and so we yeah, we'll do it. You know, so we sponsored him with an engine and, Wow. Uh, the rest is history because Blair came to Duluth, stand-up style riding, uh, doing the Superman, the kicks, the, uh, doing the tricks in front of the crowd at the finish line. It was a whole new deal. And uh, nobody was prepared for that. And as it turned out, Blair had one of our 600 engines, and uh, or 678 engine, I guess it was, based on the, on the 600. And he just annihilated everybody. And he, uh, then that team grew into not only as the EFI development went along, we went with, uh, with Carl. Carl had the, a lot of uh, altitude information and wanted to use the EFI systems to get out into his altitude area. So we worked with him a lot on that. And uh, it was a great relationship. Uh, lots of good feedback. Tons of uh, response from Blair, and, and for those of you that know Blair as well as I do, it's, it's hard to understand him because he, he doesn't say a lot, but when he says something, you have to understand why he's saying it. And uh, he taught us a lot about engines and engine response and how the drivers would like it for the, uh, for the uh, snowcross racing arena. The big thing that I think, and I'll throw this out there right now, and Bert can probably add to this too, but... I think one of the biggest mistakes that snowcross racing ever did is when they went from the open engine based on a stock cylinder to an aftermarket cylinder. Once that, once that aftermarket cylinder was opened up where you could get your own casting, it drove the cost of racing up Twice so much. Yeah. It, just, it just took a half, half the people who were able to do it out of the deal. And... Uh, then all of a sudden, those engines that had engines or cylinders based on the stock engine, all those studs were outdated, and it just—it really made it into a rich man's sport at that time. Yeah. 
Were you getting much support from Articat at, at that time? You, you were really, you were the yeah. number one team, obviously. Yeah, not really. We did all of our stuff on our own. Um, Scott Cassidy was the guy that did the engine work for Blair. In fact, Scott, even after Scott had gone to work for himself out in Maine, he would come back every winter. And very few people know this, but he did all of their Blair's uh, screw engines on our Dynod Black Magic at the time. And um, Scott had a good understanding of Blair, and Blair could relate to Scott as to what he wanted and what he needed, and, and we tried to do the best that we could to build for him. So that um, that was all done on ours, you know, done through the 678 stuff. As it went from there, then Cooper had developed his uh, his cylinders that he put out for the aftermarket cylinder. Joey wanted to try some of those engines, and, and D&D grabbed a few of those engines and, and their cylinders, and that's when they made the cylinders for Tucker, and that's when Tucker was starting... Uh, as a 15 or 16 year old, and, and then of course all of a sudden Tucker and Blair were racing each other head to head. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, Bert, um, Formula Three's taking off big time. Uh, 80, 89 or so. 80, 89, 90. Correct. Is, is that is that? Yeah, 89, something? 90, 91. You know. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, and you two had had a huge rivalry uh, going with. Um, uh, you know, on, in uh, on all circuits, probably for Formula Three. Um, Brian Sturgeon was one of your big riders, uh, uh, Tim, and uh, you had the Hool brothers. And uh, uh, also, I have to note, uh, my my brother uh, Ken um, was one of your riders, Bert, and he, he's uh, he's uh, he's having more difficulties getting on this call than you did. So um, <laughs> <laughs> he's texting me now, see, and he's tra- he's he's having trouble getting on. But uh, um, he wanted to talk to you too. But uh, Talk about the, talk about the Formula Three racing back uh, back then. Um, I mean, it, it was always you, you you your teams locked into battles, uh, you know, at, at all the big races. And Bert oh will... gosh, it uh, it seemed to be <laughs> be uh, Guy Uselinger and Brian Sturgeon and Mike and Steve Hull would uh, end up in a pretty fierce battle at just about every racetrack we went to. Uh, we had we built uh, like I say a lot of sleds for other guys and they they competed very well, you know uh, Mark Rush and Kenavan, Chad Lofton, Todd Loggy, I can name a whole string of them. But they uh, the sleds were all competitive, but those uh, those four guys like I mentioned uh, they uh, they seemed to be the cream of the well they were the cream of the crop. They uh, they ended up in a pretty uh, vicious battle at uh, at just about every race we went to. Yeah. Do you recall how many uh, any any wins? Like, uh, did you happen to, uh, as of note, how many wins the the Hull brothers got? And uh, um, you know, uh, like Eagle River. Uh, I know Steve's Steve won on your sled. I'll I'll, I'll tell you, Ken. Okay. <laughs> the competition knows Bert. <laughs> they got they got too many. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, well, you, well, Tim, Tim, your rider, Brian Sturgeon. I mean, yeah, some people would think that he was he was also one of the most dominant riders in, on, on ovals. I mean, he's, it, he seemed to win at everything on either on a stock ra- ra- uh, sled or or Formula Three. So, um, is, is is there any to, uh, some races? We'll, we'll go back to some races. Is there any race? And we'll ask I'll ask you both that 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 you're you're really happy you won, and maybe maybe a race that you think you should have won and, and one that got away. Well, start start with you. Uh, start with you, Bert. I I would have to say in in uh, 
1990 when uh, when Mike and Steve finished first and second at Eagle River in the Formula Three. That was a a real highlight for me, and and uh, I guess next would be you know the the Michigan I-500 over there, the 500 miler, winning that with a few teams was was very rewarding for me. Yeah, and Tim. Well, I'd have to say the the most while we didn't build the engine for Brian in Formula Three that year, but it was the year that Brian did win the Formula Three race in Eagle River, and uh, Greg Spalding had built that engine, and and uh, I was kind of instrumental or a little bit instrumental in helping getting Greg over to Articat at the time, and for the singular purpose of helping develop that the race engine of the the 600 triple that he worked with there for Brian Jeanette. That was rewarding because it was, it was such a long time coming. And as Bert will know, the, uh, the Articat sleds compared to the Flutter sled and the setups were so different. Um, and I call it loose and tight. You know, the, the studs that Brian would have that Stephen Dean would build were very tight and aggressive in the corners to kind of wear them out, whereas Steve and Mike could manhandle their sleds and throw them around and put them wherever they wanted to at any point in time on the track. And, and that's what made the racing so good at the time. I'd say that that was the most rewarding one because it was, that, that race was something that took a couple of years to achieve with getting Greg to come over there and stuff like that. And some of the most difficult ones, I'd have to say, were up in Valcor. Um, I remember... <laughs> I remember seeing Tim Bender go off the end of turn three in Belcar, and I thought he was going to probably land in New York or where, whatever direction that goes. But that was Mike Sack. That, that was Mike Sack at that. Yeah, it did, yeah. That, I just wish I wasn't even there because it was it was incredible. I remember looking up and the way he went, and that was with that four cylinder. Yeah. Those things were so fast that, um, and that's why Bert said they were the cream of the crop. Very few people could drive them to their full ability. Yeah. And I think those four guys, along with Tim Bedger, are the ones that could. Yeah, that that particular race, uh, my brother won. Uh, Ken won on your uh, sled, uh, Bert, uh, at that uh, at that race. Uh, so that was that was one of Ken's highlights. Uh, he he's, he's, he was trying to get on the phone with us uh, uh, just now, but uh, the moderator is not letting him on either. So uh, uh, Bert, he apologizes uh, to that. He wanted to talk to you and, and say hello and and uh, and talk about uh, the old days, but uh, he he's having troubles and he's. Uh, He's a busy boy these days, these days if you keep track of him. So, um, anyway, uh, uh, Bert, um, and t- uh, what, what, would, what, what do you think? And how I'll get to you. Uh, I know you got some questions, but uh, Bert, uh, these Formula Three sleds uh, back in the late '80s and '90s, what, what would you value those sleds at? I mean, they were they were like the, the like the the top NASCAR sleds of the time, kind of thing. They were they were they had every bit of technology on them, like uh, electronics and and everything on them, uh, lightweighting and what would you estimate those sleds were worth back then? You were building oh, them. I, we we sold them anywhere from uh, probably $6,500 to $10,000, you know, depending on, on how much titanium and, and how much engine spare parts and stuff went with them, you know, and clutch stuff. And uh, it was it was totally all hand-built sleds, so there was a lot of, lot of man hours in building them. And... Uh, I guess if you had to build one today, it would probably be a $30,000 sled now. Yeah, the materials today, yeah. So, um, um, 
Hal, you got you got some questions. You must have some questions. Yeah, I've got, I just got a couple questions. Um, so, I mean, I remember watching the uh, the F threes at Eagle River at the time, and they were, uh, you know, that was the, the the twin trackers were the big show, but uh, the Formula Three sleds were were, you know, like you say, they were crazy. They were they were scary to watch, like how fast these things were going into the corner. And if a guy physically wasn't strong enough. Um, and I don't know how much these guys were working out at the time to be in shape even to drive these sleds, um, or if they were just physically, and they weren't usually physically big guys, but uh, what, what, what type of... I don't know, Steve Hull was a pretty they, big boy. <laughs> were they putting out uh, uh, burnt, like, uh, what was the top horsepower sled that you'd make for Eagle River back in the they day? They were from uh, probably 145 to, to 150 horsepower, and... and you know, we did some work with, with Steve Hu on, uh, we actually had the cylinders on. This was a fuel-injected version that uh, he had a, a couple fellows uh, build him some Bosch injectors and different stuff, and we ended up with uh, with an engine put together with the cylinders facing forward and the pipes going underneath the seats. And uh, that that was up around 152 horse, I believe, and uh, the reason it did make that kind of power was because the pipes were straight and they weren't curved. And, and <laughs> that's where Steve got his performance shop name of Hot Seat. Oh, really? Yeah. What, ra what races did he race that at, at uh, Bert? He raced, he raced that sled uh, probably... I don't recall it. I don't recall, uh, recall that. And he run it at Eagle River. He run it over in Annie Gold. What year was that, Bert? That was in 91. 91. So where'd you put the fuel tanks? It was alongside where the driven clutch there was built into a footrest. Uh, okay. Step. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, so I mean, you know, for people listening to this today, I mean, they're going, okay, these sleds were 140, 150 horse, and now you can go out and buy a, you know, that turbo cat with 180 some horse, and these guys running these mountain sleds, you know, that are turboed, uh, the 800s you know, putting out way over 200 horse. Um, but I guess we have to look at the weight. I mean, these sleds were weighing, what, 320, 330 pounds? Like the power-to-weight ratio was just crazy on them. No, we had a we had a weight limit of, of 440. Oh, we had a weight limit, okay. We had to weigh, and uh, we actually would make, uh, <laughs> well, we'd take heat exchangers and put them on the running boards and fill them full of lead to, to get get our weight where we so we'd meet the 440 pounds but uh, they were surprisingly fast for weighing that much and how hard they would accelerate and uh, so they always had their hands full driving them yeah um so tim with uh with the uh, with the cats on the formula the three uh uh, Brian Sturgeon and uh, and were you doing a lot of suspension parts at the time? I mean, this is when uh, Fox shocks started to come in to play in the in the mid 90s. You know, I mean, now we started to get into starting to be able to do some valving that type of thing. Is, was that a big part of uh, of uh, Black Magic business at the time? That that kind not, of paired not, not really. We you know there was. Very little suspension work done. There was a lot of suspension design done, but I don't think that the valving really came in and the actual tuning of SUDS shock absorber systems came until Snowcross became very popular 
And then, when, like uh, Gordon said earlier, when Kirk Hibbert came in, because Kirk, Kirk brought a lot of uh, knowledge from uh, mountain riding with the Fox Shocks to Articat, and Stephen Dean would pick up on that, and they'd play with those suspension uh, ideas with those shock absorbers. But you know, as far as the company of Black Magic, no, there was um, very, it was very difficult for a company like that to be deep into that type of suspension work because it simply takes too much to do it, it, to uh, to do it and, and do it and, and stay profitable. Okay. You know, the engine work we work with a lot. We did a lot of engine work with Articat. Yeah. Uh, they do a lot of the excess dyno work with race engines. Uh, Greg would go over to our place and dyno on weekends at night and stuff, with, especially with the new triple. So yeah. there was a lot of work done there. But okay, so, so we did not do a lot. So, uh, Bert, like how many hours to build one of these F3 sleds back in the day? I'm guessing uh, just off the top here, we probably had a minimal of probably uh, 80 hours, man hours in, in each each sled, it was, uh, you know, the, the rear suspensions were all chromoly, you know, everything was all hand-built, so it, was, it wasn't too much stock components there other than probably the, the tunnel and bulkhead being modified, you know. And, you, and the tracks, like on both of your sleds, were you running uh, still cleated tracks or were you starting to make the move to uh, rubber tracks? No, we were definitely with the rubber tracks, yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was part of the rules, track. correct? That was part of the rules. You had to have rubber yes. trucks, yeah. Yeah, so just the F1 sleds were still running the uh, the, the little cleated tracks then. Yeah, okay. I, I said I think just the twin trackers were running the cleated tracks still then. It's possible. Yeah, I believe they were, yeah. Yeah, I, believe, I recall that Dave and Dermot were running the little cleated tracks. So when the Friday Night Thunder, they started doing that Eagle River with the twin trackers against the Formula 3s. Well, how, were you guys instrumental in kind of getting that going to, to you know, for the show? Not me. I, <laughs> I tell you what, I wanted to hide during that deal. <laughs> did, did you guys... Not, because, of, not uh, because I'm scared of the well, one or the other winning. Well, it's just I guess, I guess we'll have dangerous. to dangerous. Well, they to do it. <laughs> <laughs> what did you guys think about the competition of, between Formula Three and F1 uh, back then? I mean, there they, they were there were two, you know, pri uh, primary big league race race teams, but totally different uh, snowmobiles. What, what, what did you what did you guys think of? Uh, the, you know, who should have more? I mean, the World Championship always had the the spotlight, but did, did you guys feel, uh, you know, that Formula 3, you were well represented uh, with your Formula 3 class? I, I, I personally think Formula 3 was well represented. I think one of the things that I proposed, in, you know, in, in being a promoter that I was at the time, I was trying to put together a Formula 3 series to travel with Formula 1, where you could have uh, a Formula 3 class and a Formula 1 class at various venues across the United States and Canada and use that as your primary show and have your other stock classes and mod classes as fillers. But then again, that came into the fact that I was involved with Articat at the time and the other manufacturers didn't necessarily want to do it. I know the Polaris guys did really want to do it really bad, but I ran into a real uh, struggle with promoting with the, with the school people at the time. But 
the, in order for racing to have stayed the same or stayed big, I think we needed to get away from the OEM type vehicle, and Albert may have a different feeling on that. But it's, I say it's the same thing as stock car racing. You got your Wasota Modifieds, you got your Modifieds and stuff up there in Canada, you got your Sprint cars. Those seem to keep the same numbers on a consistent basis, and they get a crowd. Whereas it became so difficult to race stock sleds whenever you're tying everything to the stock chassis, as the sleds evolved, it virtually killed oval racing. Yeah. The sleds were made for bumps, and you couldn't make them work well on, on stock oval racing. Yeah, Bert, you're, you're you're still you're still building sleds um, um, in, in the enduro circuit. Uh, how, how do you find how do you find that uh, that type of racing uh, going now? Um, uh, obviously, things have slowed down a little bit, but you but you still I mean, there's there's still a pretty decent circuit up there for enduro oval racing. Uh, how, how are you making out with that? And uh, how many sleds do you do you generally make a year now? Well, like I like I said earlier, we're down to we're probably going to build three four sleds this year, and the enduro racing has gotten so horribly expensive for the average guy that it's actually shrinking down to just the one uh, Sioux 500 to 500 mile race at Sioux Saint Marie. There, the the Myra or the Michigan enduro circuit is having a heck of a time. Uh, putting on races. I believe they had three races last year, and, and I don't know if, if uh, MRI is, is going to survive. I heard another fellow was going to take it over, but uh, it seems, though, that it's just uh, the Sioux 500 race is uh, kind of the main one out there, and, and uh, they did have a very good uh, number of sleds turn out to qualify uh, last year. They had a full field of 38 sleds, so that race seems to be doing well, but the rest of it's uh, having some trouble. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, might be a good opportunity to, to ask you both. Um, where Where do you see racing, uh, good, good and bad now? Uh, what, what do you see uh, is, is is working, and, and what do you see is not working? Start with start, start with Tim. Well, I, I think that uh, the biggest growth that you're going to see is what you've seen in the past three four years here with oval racing with the F500 classes, as long as they keep those controlled and uh, you'll have a very good turnout to that and it'll continue to grow because you have to put a value into Joe Blow's hand that he can take that vehicle, sell it to a sport or a uh, uh, novice rider, and he can bring that to the next races the next year and be competitive. So you can keep a value in those vehicles because as soon as the value of the vehicle goes out, it's done. You know, you, you need to have a million dollars to go racing for ten, ten dollars. You know, because it's just it's stupid. I think the outlaw class is kind of cool. I think that um, champ racing is is fun to watch. But man, I have to say it. I can see the same thing happening with champ racing as happened with Formula Three. Uh, they're just so flipping fast. I don't know that the racetracks and the rules that we have to control these racetracks are adequate enough to ensure the safety of not only the drivers but some of the spectators. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's very important to me. The older I get, the more I think, of, man, we sure did some stupid things back then with some of those sleds. 
and um, I, I want to, I want to see it continue. But I, I most of the things I like about those two comments or three comments, none of those vehicles are based on a stock vehicle. Yeah, yeah. They're based on something that can have a, a value forever. Yeah. And, and once and once uh, one of those sleds is, I mean, you, you mentioned it. Uh, once uh, once you buy these uh, Formula 500 sleds or Champ sleds, uh, they really are good for the original owner. It's it, it's it's tough to sell that sled a year or two later because obviously if it's not competitive for that owner, um, the, the the value of the sled is still pretty high. And you know it's it's you know if if it's not competitive, then it's not competitive for the next person. Um, Snowcross is different. I mean, you can sell a sled and and uh, it, it can it can go different routes. It can after somebody's raced it, it can go to the trail or it can go anywhere really. But uh, um, Bert, um, your, your your impressions too of of current of current racing. Where 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 do you see things could improve or and, and what 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 went wrong? Well, I feel that uh, you know they're they're trying to put the the cross country circuit back together with with the stock sled, you know, a manufactured stock sled, and I, I think that will bring some numbers back into it. They're, they're going to try run the Winnipeg St. Paul. As far as is getting to the mod sleds, you know, if you look at, at one of these 440 champ sleds, uh, I think you're probably looking at probably $40,000 to be competitive with one, and, and uh, like Tim was saying, at the end of the year, <laughs> You don't have much to pass on to, to recoup some of your, your money there. And, and uh, to me, the, the caliber of drivers that it takes to run those sleds, is, there's just a, just a handful of them, so I don't see that growing very big in numbers. And, and I, I got to agree with Tim that I think that the stock format has to come, come back to, to get the numbers back in racing again. Yep. Stock format. What do you what do you what are you suggesting for stock format? What would you, what would you base your rules upon for us for a stock format uh, sled? Well, I think I think Polaris Arctic and Skidoo are are all building uh, a pretty decent uh, sled that can compete in oval and cross country. You know, there's you know I guess you'd have to open it up uh, for some modification work for for ovals, but uh, for cross country there, I think they're all three building. Uh, some pretty nice sleds for for competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, four. I think four. I think uh, I mean, we can't we can't. Yamaha's is pretty pretty, pretty involved in it across country. But Hal, you got some questions? Yeah. Just before we we wrap things up, I uh, I just wanted to I guess first with Bert because you're still the company's still active. I mean it's low key. It's not uh, there's not a lot of profile advertising that type of thing. So it's word of mouth. But um, um, what do you see, you know, when you're building these enduro sleds, um, you know, and, and I have never gone to the Sioux 500 myself to actually witness it, but, I mean, it's an oval-type sled. What would be the big difference between that sled and, you know, your F3 sled? If you look at as far as how technology has evolved, what's the maybe the top three items that have significantly changed? Well, basically, uh, what what most of the guys are using there, as far as the, the Polaris uh, chassis format, is the Snowcross sled, and and the modifications are to the rear suspension and, and front A arms. The sled is just lowered and, and widened a bit, and, and uh, of 
course the shock's already done and the seat's a little bit lower and, and that's the the type of sled that uh, the fellows are running the Enduros with over there, that Soup 500 race. Is that 600, that's the 600 motor they're running, what, uh, as far as horsepower and that type of thing goes, are they comparable or is there a limit on them? No, there, it's, uh, it's, you can run any 600 mod current engine that the manufacturers are building, which, which ends up being a, a twin cylinder, but, uh, yeah. They're producing 150 horse, and, and uh, they're getting the sled weight down, down around that 450, you know, maybe a little heavier than that. But by the time you get the big fuel tanks and stuff on them, and that. But. So with the interest in the Winnipeg-St. Paul, hopefully it, it goes this year. We get the snow. Uh, are you are you building any sleds for anybody with that, like Bunky, or 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 any riders come to you wanting you to build them an I-500 sled, or no? No, not not as of yet, and uh, and like I say, we're just <laughs> I'm pretty well semi-retired or almost retired, you know. So we're going to just do these enduro sleds, and there's a couple young fellows that we said that we'd help out with uh, with some clutching and different setup stuff on some cross-country sleds. So okay, and to extent. and Tim, uh, so the Black Magic, uh, you wrapped up Black Magic in what 2002? You sold it. Actually, we sold it in uh, 2005, uh, October of 2005. 2005, okay. And uh, if, I, if I can ask, like, why why did you decide to get out of the snowmobile business? Were you just burnt out on it or other challenges? I run out of, run out of money. <laughs> 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 I had to go back to pipelines. I could make enough money to do it again. No, the, uh, it became, you know, when, when the EPA comes into the deal like that, like they did, with noise pollution and, and emissions, you can't lay people off fast enough. Like, you have the Superflow 901, you have people that are running that, designing engines, designing pipes. We had two CNC machines, they cost anywhere from thirty-five to 50000 a piece. You buy programs to do CAD work, it's $10,000, and you're paying you $5,000 a year just to keep it up. And then, of course, you have the people to do these things. Well. You know, I've, I've told people, a lot of people this, but Bert can relate. We would do $20,000 a month in business in May and June, and we'd peak at over a million in December and January. You can't lay people off fast enough to get your $20,000 a month in May and June to cash flow. You okay. simply can't. And, and it's... a uh, such a seasonal business. As soon as the like the EPA came involved and the noise and, and uh, emissions control came in, it became so restrictive. And where we were located up in Deepwater Falls, we didn't have um, a lot of people that would, were willing to bring in their vehicles to Deepwater Falls to work on. Uh, had we been located probably in the metro area of Minneapolis, St. Paul, or something like that, we'd have probably had a different situation. But so whatever we had, we had to design, engineer, design, produce, package, and ship to turn it into a dollar. It's not something where we could do a lot of installations or uh, dealership type work. And that, that, that was the main reason. And after a while, I could see the writing on the wall. Uh, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the business that I wanted it to be. 
and um, we were coming back from Bristol, Tennessee, and uh, at this NASCAR race in August, and I called my wife. I was driving back. I said, Roxanne, I said, what do you want to do? She said, what do you need? I said, well, I said, we either got to sell this business, close this business, or something. I said, or we're going to run out of money. We're going to spend every dime we've earned for retirement keeping this thing afloat. What do you want to do? And she said, well, I don't know. And of course, she didn't want to say anything. And that's when I decided I called the company I used to work for, asked if there's anything I could do for them at the time. And uh, that was in August of 2003. And by January 1st of 2004, I went down to Atlanta, Georgia, to uh, run the Southeast Division for the pipeline contractors that I had grown up with. So Roxanne stayed up there, ran the business until we sold it, and along with our house and our daughter finished high school. It was a difficult time for us to do that, but it's something we had to do uh, financially. Otherwise, uh, we'd have been living in a double wide on somebody's rented land. <laughs> Someplace, you know. Yeah. yeah. Probably have to live in the backyard with Bert. Who knows, you know? There you go. <laughs> okay, Bert. 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 What are you doing? The, what are you doing these days? You're, you're, you're building drill sleds. What else? Uh, what else are you doing? And if uh, do you still have old stock? Like if any, if anybody wanted to contact you for old indie parts, uh, do you still have a good inventory? Or let's talk to the, uh, you know. I've, I've been I've been selling an awful lot. You know, I've I've got some stuff. And actually, Wayne Hanson is is going to. Uh, move uh, a lot of the stuff down to Stratcona, Minnesota, where he's from. And he, uh, talk about a loyal employee, I was so fortunate to have Wayne uh, Wayne come to work for me, and, and uh, he's been with me for 28 years. And He's going to kind of kind of take whatever he wants. I said, you help yourself to anything in this, this uh, shop or buildings out here you need, and, and uh, if you want to keep the business going, fine. Otherwise, I'm... Uh, I'm thinking about that uh, that warm climate that Tim is down there. <laughs> yeah, we all are. <laughs> um, but uh, okay, so uh, Bert, where where can people contact uh, contact information for Pro Five? We're gonna Wayne and I are gonna put something together, and, and he'll probably do a little advertising. But uh, it's just kind of word of mouth. People get a hold of me now, but uh, Wayne, we have to make a decision if he's gonna going to advertise or just kind of keep it on a on a small level you know so we yeah. haven't done that yet yeah are you going to be what's your current year looking like are you going to make any races uh both of you we'll ask both of you are you going to make any uh snowcross races or oval races uh, eagle river any any races i plan on going to eagle river and of course i'll be out at the sioux 500 there and you guys better get over and see that race. They have about thirty thousand people there. Yeah, that, that's on my that's on my that's on my bucket list. I, I I think Hal and I need to get up there this year. We've been talking about it. We have talked about it a lot, for, you know, because we we do duties for Snowboard Canada. So we definitely do have to get up there and uh, have a look at that event because uh, you know it 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 it, it does uh, you know need respect for sure. It's been going on for for many years, and also the I five hundred is also on our list too. So um, we definitely want to get get to those two events and. Uh, and, and check them out. Uh, so, um, Bert, what, what are you up to these days? Or, uh, uh, Tim, what are you up to these days? Well, actually, we were kind of semi-retired. They uh, closed the office we had. We were in Atlanta, and then we moved it to uh, uh, right outside of Birmingham, Alabama, with uh, the pipeline contractor, and they elected to close that office in the later part of 2012. Uh, so, Roxanne was my office manager. We had like 140 employees. We shut everything off and uh, closed that office, and 
I was the area manager, so both of us were unemployed at age 59 at the same time, November 9, 2012. So the first thing we did is we uh, went to the airport, got on a plane, flew to Orlando, and went on a cruise for a week. Oh, yeah. We, of course, that had already been planned, so we didn't want to change that. But uh, after that, we decided to just try and semi-retire. We came back, sold our home in Alabama. We had a rental home in the Destin Port area, put that on a long-term lease, and started looking online and, and bought a house in Cape Coral right outside of Fort Myers. And then to try and help us uh, have some financial security, we each did our own thing. Roxanne got a real estate license. She's been a real estate agent here now for a couple of years, doing very well. And she's closing on her 16th or 17th home here this Thursday for the, for the year of 2015. She's had a really good year, and I have... Um, a little direct sale stuff out of my house. Uh, no inventory, just uh, via the Internet, Facebook, uh, text messaging, things of that nature. And so that's been a very good business for us. And what it does is it allows us to uh, pay these exorbitant health insurance fees uh, until we turn 65. Yeah. So uh, that, that was our goal, and we've been able to succeed at that so far. So we're loving it. Weather's great. Maybe 83 or 84 today. I don't see a cloud in the sky. Okay, so what's what's, what's this company? What's this company you got? What's this company you got there, Tim? And uh, give us some information, and uh, people may want to contact you. Well, right now, it's the name of the company is uh, Lavelle. It's uh, the Thrive Experience. It's nutritional based, and it's uh, three steps in the morning, and you get all your nutrition. You take two capsules, and 30 minutes later, you have a, a shake. And then uh, we have these uh, patent pending derma fusion technology patches. We actually stick it on your upper arm or your hip or leg or something where you actually are transferring vitamins and minerals into your bloodstream through your uh, body's largest organ, which is the skin. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's how we do that. And they're not very good for us. So if anybody wants to reach me and look at that, they can find me on Facebook, of course, is Tim Berg, or the website is uh, timberg.lavelle.com. So... uh, it's worked out very well for us. It's been an exciting deal, and uh, I invite everybody to come to Florida. The only thing I'm disappointed with is I didn't get here earlier in life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hal, you got any uh, last questions? Uh, no, just uh, it was the thanks for doing this, uh, Bert and Tim, uh, Pro 5 and uh, Black Magic, of course, uh, you know, big names in the history of, uh, of snowmobiling, and uh, – a lot of our listeners, of course, are younger people, and they they probably never even heard of of the two companies. <laughs> but uh, real uh, real powerhouses in the snowmobile industry back in the uh, 80s and 90s, and uh, and uh, have helped to bring snowmobiling uh, uh, to where it is today, the sleds that we ride. And uh, that's what this is all about: is talking to uh, to people like you uh, that have uh, you know put your uh, spent your lives. Uh, in doing uh, snowmobiling, something that you grew up with and loved, and uh, and uh, we really appreciate everything you did for the sport. Yep, I agree. Well, thank you, thank you, Hal. One thing, I, one uh, thing I'd like to make mention of here, if I possibly could, before we uh, get off, for sure, is uh, I'd re- I would really like to thank the hey, guys. I don't know if you recall, we were over in Grantsburg. Yep, yeah. Go ahead. Bert? Yeah, we were over at Grantsburg at the water skip and. Uh, I think Jim was uh, had his trailer. I don't know. Maybe he was just over sightseeing. But anyway, I had a trailer there, and we were selling uh, 
t-shirts and, and hats and uh and it got to uh to raining pretty good so yeah <laughs> <laughs> you recall this story Tim? uh it's gonna get good go ahead <laughs> okay well we it's uh it was kind of raining and uh, we had to be in and out of the the clothing trailer there and, and uh we were having refreshments and enjoying ourselves adult beverages of course and it got to raining pretty hard, so we moved our, our hamburger grill right into into the race trailer. And Tim and I were in charge of the cooking there. I'll, I'll blame it on Tim. We were making cheeseburgers, and, and somebody flipped the burgers over with the cheese on. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, They were tasty, though, weren't they, Bert? Yeah. Oh, they were delicious. <laughs> I, I I know there's a lot more stories like that around uh, with you two. Yeah, well, what I was going to say is I I really have to thank the uh, the guys at Flares. I think that if you ask any virtually anybody that's involved with the performance business of snowmobiles, you know, you'll get some people that are pretty uh, adamant about specific brands, but you'll find that. Virtually everybody that's done well with the businesses has grown a business. They've all come through the Polaris School of Racing. Mm -hmm. And I can't say enough for guys like Bert, Bobby Persequas, Bob Easton, Jim Burnett, Leroy. You know, love them to death. I can remember going to that first race school in uh, Bloomington, Minnesota, when I got that new Polaris sled, that 432 twin, and Leroy stood up there and, and, uh, introduced the new clutching system for the players race sled and his closing comments were at the at lunch he says well we're done right now guys and i'll take the first screwdriver anybody wants to buy me <laughs> and that, that's how he closed out that deal at the at the first race school i was at and and those guys taught us so much both jimmy and greg headland and and jan um if there's ever a question you just call larry or bert or and we called them a lot, and all of us used them. So with that, i got to say, those guys taught us a lot. And a lot of knowledge comes out of Rosal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the pioneers. Oh, I sure miss Leroy. He's, uh, he's been gone three years now, and he was very <laughs> instrumental in, in helping me with all kinds of phases of racing. And, and, of course, he worked for me in the shop for a number of years, but he passed away here three years ago, and I uh, miss him every uh Every time I get a little question about something, I think, well, no, I can't ask Leroy. Yeah, that's right. I can't believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate uh, you guys coming on the line uh, with us. Um, um, you know, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed my time with uh, with you. Uh, I've seen you both quite often at the at the Formula Three races uh, when I was tagging with my brother. But uh, uh, in Bert, uh, yeah, at your shop there, you know, I think. Uh, you, you had uh, you had us working away at your shop there on the sleds, but uh, it was fun times, uh, and uh, you know I, I, I sensed the rivalry between you two, so I thought it would be great to get these guys on the on the on a call and, and talk about your your past racing. So it was uh, it was great. I enjoyed uh, talking to you both again, and uh, and Bert, I, you know I, I I think we're gonna get to Hal up there and we're gonna we're gonna try to make up that uh, Sioux 500 uh, race. What do you think, Hal? You'll you'll love it. Yeah. Yeah. Usually have a motorhome up there. We'll look you up and mix uh, stirry uh, hot chocolate. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, Hal, thanks a lot for uh, for coming on, co-hosting with us. Uh, this uh, this uh, I know Hal was uh, pretty excited to talk to you, Bert. And um, so um, thanks a lot. 
and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Jim. Uh, I'll give you a call one of these days. Sounds good, Bert. I'll talk to you soon. Very good. Great. Thanks, Thanks a lot. You bet.